Welcome to the LA Realtor Podcast. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And we're getting to know the industry one conversation at a time. Hey, sir. Hey, Paul. Why do you sound so sad? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> that came out weird. Let me try that again. Hey! Hey! hey oh, that's weird too, but I like it. <laughs> it's more energy. You're that's welcome. Good. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that like, especially plumbing, plumber trucks have hmm. like weird, like anecdotes on their trucks, like that are trying to be funny about number one, number two. Have you oh, ever noticed that? I can't say that I've noticed that. Oh no. my God. I just passed a van recently that has the best one, literally on the side of the van, plumbing van, wow. mind you, it says, this is great. Shit's about to go down. <laughs> literally. That's it. Like, Does that's... it say literally? No, they're oh, missing the I mean, literally. I well, think they don't need it. No, they don't need it. Because I think it. people are good. smart. Yeah. And they they get it. <laughs> I also always appreciate when a company is willing to put a word like shit in there. Well, it's marketing. got the little asterisk, so it doesn't say the word. Oh, they it's got the symbols, oh, no. but well, or now, like now this episode is like a rated R episode explicit. because we said that. Uh <laughs> it, it is, yeah. Usually you and I swear or I swear. Like the, the other plumbers are like we're number one in number twos, stuff like that. They, they, they really get creative with it. <laughs> That's interesting. I've never noticed that, but I like that you seem to be a connoisseur. I'm going to start bands. a website. Yeah, let's do it. Um, anyways, this has nothing to do with our guests. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I just like to get that out. Yeah. So who do we, who do we have today? Uh, we have a great friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time, maybe an embarrassingly long time, but I think you're really going to enjoy him. He's been on a ton of podcasts because he is just an absolute wealth of information. He is an exceptionally smart guy. So welcome, my friend, Jeremy Roll. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Thank Paul, thanks so much for having me on. I've known you for, God, I was just thinking maybe 15 years. Sure. For sure. For sure. Let me talk to you. Well, I'll let Jeremy kind of tell you what he does, but let me tell you why I'm so impressed with what he does. Jeremy is what I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a, a passive real estate investor professionally. So some people dabble in the stock market and they do some investing. Maybe they have some rental homes, but Jeremy, I believe is like a professional passive investor. And that's all he does. Now I'll have him describe it, but he is the only person I know that does this professionally for a career. So correct me where I'm wrong, Jeremy, and tell us. What no, you that's do. absolutely correct, Paul. Um, I do that full time. I invest mostly in real estate, a little bit of non-real estate too. And yeah, I've been doing it actually full time since 2007. So it's been over 15 years. And but, but I started in 2002, so over 20 years ago. Tell me, you know, our audience is uh, mostly real estate agents. I don't know if everyone's done real estate investing. Uh, we did have uh, an agent on uh, in episode 31. I think it was Brandon Half. We asked him about active real estate investing. We asked him for agents. Is it makes sense to do uh, active investing, buying rental properties, flipping homes? But let me ask you broad strokes for people who don't understand what it is. I don't or, understand. There you go. For Sarah, <laughs> thank you. What is passive real estate sure. investing? Can you define it? It's a it? great question because honestly, I'm not sure if there's an official definition. And so mm. the way that I delineate passive versus active is control. And so probably a lot of people listening to this are going to say to themselves, okay, you're passive if you buy one, two, three, four, five, whatever number of homes, have them as rentals and you hire a third party property manager, excuse me. And then, you know, they're managing most of it. But to me, that's not passive because you have control over the homes. 
you have to, may have to choose if there's a toilet that needs to be replaced, which one to buy. You may be able to hire and fire property managers. You may decide to go refire, sell a property or one or all of them or whatever number you want any time of day. That to me is active because you have control. On the passive side, it's really when you give up control that you're truly passive, right? And then someone else is managing the whole thing. And what I mean by that as well is that I don't go around looking for properties to invest in. I go around looking for opportunities that other people are buying and putting together and looking for those business plans to review to possibly invest in. And so the concept is that typically when you're passive, a sponsor, which the person is actually purchasing the property and kind of sponsoring the whole deal, is putting something under contract, coming to many investors, typically pulling many investors together, and then each investor is putting in a small piece of a much larger deal, and it can really vary in size. You could do a single home like this. You could do, honestly, a downtown LA office building like this and everything in between. You can even do a huge fund of office buildings or whatever asset class you want. And so I tell people that when I go passive, I'm trading control for diversification. And I get to put small pieces across a lot of things. And when I diversify, I look for diversification across asset classes, geographies, and operators, which is something that you really can't do if you're active or it's very difficult to do if you're active. And some people who are active actually would prefer to be very local and don't want to be diversified across asset classes. So, you know, there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are necessarily wrong, but that's kind of how the passive side works. So passive is somebody else, some other developer, some other sponsor that you know, or that you've gotten comfortable with is doing a deal and they need to raise equity and they need to get a bunch of investors to come in and give them capital. And so they'll come to Jeremy, for example, or other folks, and Jeremy will write them a check if Jeremy believes in the deal. Is that correct, Jeremy? And then maybe give us an example of a deal. Yeah, sure. No, that's absolutely right. God, examples of deals. There's so many because I, I review stuff like this is what I do full time. So, well, let me just say that probably a lot of people are driving around LA, not thinking about all the buildings they're passing and how each one very often has many pooled investors in them. So whether you're passing by a strip mall that has a nail salon, a mom and pop shop, maybe a Domino's, that is often owned by a pool of investors like this. I mean, it could be literally any piece of real estate you're looking at. Apartment buildings are very popular. But I'm invested across, well, I'm personally kind of hyper diversified. So I'm in over 60 different LLCs currently. I've been in over 150 to 200 over the past 20 plus years. And so I'll just give you the quick list of what I'm in, which is probably going to sound a little crazy to people who are maybe just focused on homes, but apartments, student housing apartments, uh, senior housing, mobile home park, self-storage, RV park, office, retail, industrial, single family buy and holds, single family flips, single family lending to single family flippers. And then you can also do industrial which I'm not currently in. You could do hotels, which I'm not currently in. And then there's all kinds of non-real estate stuff as well. And then of course, within all of these asset classes, and I'm sure I missed some, there's also different risk profiles, right? You could be the group that's going to go and tear down a building and do a ground up development, or you could be the group that buys something that's 100% occupied, completely stabilized, and everything in between. And so often when you see a Starbucks at the corner, you know, single Starbucks at the corner, that's often owned by a group of investors, like just everything and anything you can think of on the real estate side. So you bring equity to the project and then you remain like part of that, right? So you're getting income off of it, right? It's not like you're putting money into a project that's then being sold generally. So it- something you're holding on to? So actually, you can choose to do whatever strategy makes the most sense for you. Now, some strategies are easier to find. They're done in more volume than others. But 
personally, I, I focus on what I would call a longer term hold. And in this world, a longer term hold is typically 10 years. It's kind of harder to find something for more than a 10 year hold because the loan term, unlike housing, which can go 30 plus years, is most commonly five or 10 years, sometimes seven, sometimes three, and even shorter. There's different durations, but the most common are five and 10. So the longer term duration is what I look at because when I invest, my personal thesis is to look for more predictable cash flow because I live off the cash flow. So I lo I'm looking for predictability. I got out of the stock market starting in 2002 after the dot-com crash, looking for more predictability. So that's what I tend to target. So I'm going to go into something that's already cash flowing day one as soon as we go in, typically at a pretty high clip, and it might be 80 to 100% occupied and stabilized, may or may not have any value at upside. That's, that's optional to me. But there's plenty of people who may solely invest in ground-up developments or even entitling the land to then develop it to flip it, right? So that would be much shorter term. I mean, you can, you can slice this and dice this in so many ways. So I wouldn't generalize for sure. Each person's going to have really whatever makes the most sense for their own needs and personality. Is there a minimum amount of equity that you can enter a project like this with? Great question. So first of all, you have to delineate between two types of investors. And I should have started all this off by saying I'm not an investment advisor or anything. It's just my understanding <laughs> and perspective as an investor, right? So um, there's two yeah. different types of investors in this space, typically. There's something called accredited investors and non-accredited investors. Now, the way that the SEC defines that, because it's not like being a member of anything, you're accredited. No, it's actually just a pure definition the SEC publishes. And it's based on either your net worth or your income. So just in the sake of, for the sake of time, I won't go through it. But if you're an accredited investor, you're typically either higher net worth or certain minimum income threshold. And if you're lower net worth or, or lower income threshold, you're non-accredited. For those who are non-accredited, much harder to invest in this type of space. The positive note is that the SEC passed some crowdfunding laws that were enacted and kind of went into effect in about 2015 that enable for, for non-accredited investors to invest on crowdfunding platforms where they can publicly solicit the non-accredited investors and they can invest very small chunks, like as low as a few hundred dollars, some cases a few thousand, and then get a, a tiny piece of a larger deal. And sometimes even a tiny piece of a pool of properties, right? You can do that. And, but it is very difficult for non-accredited investors to invest directly into single assets that are being pulled together with investors, like directly with the sponsor, because the sponsors have more liability by taking them on. So normally, if the sponsor has a choice, they would choose to take accredited investors only. And if you happen to meet that criteria, it'd be much easier for you to be able to invest in these types of deals. And in those deals, the most common minimum investment is probably about 50,000, but it can vary. It could be 25 sometimes for newer sponsors or for some for a specific reason. Sometimes with a very experienced sponsor, it could be minimum 100, 250. And then for real institutional type sponsor, you can see minimums, they can go 250, 500, a million type thing. The most common minimum that I have seen since the last downturn in 2009 was about 50,000. It was almost always the minimum that I typically come across. Yeah, because they're raising a million, a couple right. million. They don't want to have 500 investors. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And then so if you're putting in money, you're then getting monthly income back. Well, so that's a great question, too. So the more common distribution would be quarterly and not monthly, just because there's a lot of reasons for that. There's to be conservative right. in case they need some cash and reserve to be able to just manage distributing to like what is a lot, a lot of investors and the paperwork and the admin. So you typically will get quarterly reports and quarterly cash flow if you're going into a cash flowing property. That's the most common thing. Now, there are deals that, that may only distribute annually. Sometimes I see those. Those are not a good fit for me, but they do exist. The vast majority will probably distribute quarterly. Now, there are some that do distribute monthly, but 
if I see one that distributes monthly, the first thing I ask is why, because that puts a lot of burden on the sponsor. It actually increases the risk to investors, in my opinion, because you're getting, they're not keeping, mm. they're not, they just don't have the flexibility they have to keep the cash for a quarter and determine what to distribute. And so often the, right. the answer is that it's either a newer sponsor or there's some other reason that the sponsor is trying to make it more attractive to get the investor. Okay. I know that every deal is different and every risk profile is different, but in terms of what you do and what other people might see in the market, what type of annual return range are you looking for that you would like to see for a, a deal to have for it to be interesting? Yeah, it's a great question. And keep in mind, if you're listening to this, like, again, there's a thousand ways to invest. They're all going to have different target returns, right? Because the granite development will have no return for year two or three, whatever it's going to be potentially. So I invest in stabilized properties that are cash flowing. And now I will also say I tend to target properties outside of California because they tend to be a lower multiple that people are paying. Properties are very expensive in California. Um, you know, there's a lot of demand for the land here and people are willing to take less cash flow for the potential appreciation because as everybody knows, California tends to be a high appreciation state. That's the wrong fit for me because I'm looking for more cash flow. So I'll trade up the appreciation for more cash flow. So I typically invest out of state and in the types of properties that I look at, at the moment, you know, recording this kind of mid 2023 because it varies over time. If it doesn't have at least seven and a half percent to eight percent cash flow projected for year one, it's a very big challenge for me. I only have so many dollars to invest. I have to try to do the best and optimize the cash flow. Now, that's a really high bar to hit, especially right now when we're kind of potentially walking into recession, but prices haven't fully reset into a new cycle yet. So prices are still very high. So most of the deals I see, almost all of them will not hit that threshold in year one, and I pass on them right now, okay? It's only really unique opportunities that are hitting that threshold, unless you're going to like really bottom of the barrel, kind of very low income, bad area properties that aren't as attractive, and those have other challenges that I try to stay away from. So. So that's the number that I will target. I look at the average, the first year projected cash flow and the average annualized cash flow in terms of the bars that I'm looking forward to meet. Most investors actually pay more attention to the IRR, the internal rate of return, as to hitting a certain metric for that number and the return they're targeting. That's less important to me because I'm more focused on the cash flow. That's so fascinating. All right. So let's pivot a little bit and uh, talk to our audience about for assuming they've never done what you've been doing for a while now. Maybe they have rental properties, maybe they just sell real estate, but they'd like to diversify. They'd like to get involved. Can you give some insight into, I'm sure you've been asked for this advice before, I'd like to get into passively investing in real estate deals. What do I do to start? What, how, sh how do I go about doing Great it? Great question. So there's a whole different, there's a lot of different ways you get. Now, the good news is because of technology, podcasts and other things, you can learn much easier and much more quickly than, than when I started way back. It was a whole different landscape, right? So um, if you're interested in passive investing, the first thing I would do or tell you to do is to focus on one asset class first and learn that asset class. So I tell people, learn the asset class that is the easiest for you to understand. If you grew up in a mobile home park, that might be the way for you to start because you will understand that immediately, right? Apartments tends to be the most common asset class that people start with, both because it's probably the highest number of volume of opportunities you find out there. If you think about driving around LA, if you, for every self-storage unit, there's probably hundreds or thousands of apartment buildings, right? So that's why there's so many more deals you can find like that. But people, most people have lived in an apartment building at some point, understand the business model. It's, it's fairly straightforward. So start with one asset class. You can research that and learn that. And you can learn it a whole 
bunch of different ways. You can buy books that are available now on learning about how to, like, how to analyze those types of deals as a passive investor. You can go on to podcasts like this and search. There's so many podcasts now. And you can listen to people who are either investing in apartments as a passive investor or more commonly the actual sponsor and hear what they're doing, what they're buying, et cetera. And you can go to conferences now that exist. So you can actually network with people, hear from sponsors on panels and learn a lot more about what's going on in the market. You can go to local meetings. I actually co-founded in 2007 a nonprofit of local meetings called For Investors by Investors. We have multiple chapters in Southern California. And our whole thing is like, we try to unite investors for learning and networking in a no, strict no sales pitch environment. That's why we started it. So we still have a whole number of chapters that could be done in person or online. And actually the great thing about online right now is that you can attend a meeting, any, any virtual meeting anywhere in the US, right? So if you go onto something called meetup.com, very popular platform, you could just search on a passive apartment investing, you will find literally hundreds or thousands of meetings every month across the US, many of which are now virtual. And you can literally attend multiple meetings across multiple time zones in one night if you want to, right? So you can learn very, very quickly. Another thing I'd recommend is going onto the crowdfunding sites if you want to take a look at some sample opportunities, whether you're a credit or non credit, you'll be able to log on to those and actually be able to review them. If you're a credit, you're going to have access more to the direct deals. And one of the great things is I used to have to network all these meetings I used to go into for just to find people who had opportunities, right? Because most of them were, they were all private way back when. Most of the good ones are still private, but in terms of learning and opportunity exposure, which is a great way to learn, you can now go online, log on to a crowdfunding website, and within an hour, download 20 different opportunities in your pajamas, review them all, start to learn about how they're the same, different, what is different about them. You'll find the structure for investors is different. The sponsor's history, the business plans are different. So opportunity exposure is another really, really great way to learn. And that's actually the way that I learned when I started. So there's a lot of things you could do, even from the comfort of your home, to learn a ton without even literally leaving your house. So it's a great time to be able to look at that. And I'd also very much caution you that before you dip your toe, make sure you develop or formulate an opinion about where we are in the real estate cycle. Because real estates are cyclical. Real estate markets are cyclical. They're all different. The single family market is different than the apartment market, which is different than a lot of other markets. And just because you want to start today, it doesn't mean it's the right time for you to start, right? Like, it's almost like saying, okay, I want to start investing in stocks in 2007. That's when I happen to have the money. Let's just go try, right? Well, hold on a second. Is this the right time to invest or should I wait a year or two? So that's a very important point. I think a lot of people miss, honestly. And you have to combine your understanding of an asset class along with the right timing to actually dip your, your foot in the water. Uh, the crowdfunding platforms you're talking about, I think of CrowdStreet, Realty Mogul. There's probably a few more. Do you, are the deals on those platforms, are they decent? Or is that just a good place to do some yeah, research? It's a, first of all, it's a great place to do research. Okay. Now, so first of all, disclaimer also, I, I actually have been an advisor for Realty Mogul since before they launched. I haven't done much with them in the past few years, but so I, I'm, I'm not here to pitch them or anything. I just happen to know them well. But the bottom line is, is that if you invest through a crowdfunding platform, you're going through an intermediary, which means you're not investing directly with the sponsor. You're investing with someone who is then investing with the sponsor. Typically, Realty Mogul is a bit of an exception because they actually are a sponsor for some deals, but most of the crowdfunding sites don't do that. So if you're really busy in the working world, you don't have time to network to find opportunities or you don't have an interest in networking, going through an intermediary like a crowdfunding site, and there are other investor groups you can go through that are intermediaries, you're going to have slightly lower returns for the same risk but you're getting a great service and that you're actually finding opportunities, which by the way, is the hardest part of investing passively is finding opportunities, right? I personally don't invest in the crowdfunding site deals because I have the time to do this full time and go direct to the sponsors 
get communicating directly with the sponsors, learn them very, very well directly, but also be able to get the full return because I'm not going through an intermediary. So it depends on what you're looking for. Now, crowdfunding sites, each one is going to have its own pickiness as far as how they actually vet deals and decide what goes up on the platform. That's something you'd have to research on. You don't have a, I don't have a specific opinion on, but you do have to be careful because if you're looking at a deal on a crowdfunding site, the big question is, did they really scrutinize it carefully? Or are they just trying to maximize their own revenues as an intermediary by just listing as many deals as possible? So that, that's a question you'd have to answer. Oh, you're so cynical, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, I'm not cynical. Actually, I will tell you, I mean, I was on the advisory uh, board of Realty Mogul for a number of years looking at deals every week. And I could tell you that they were very stringent. Now, this goes back many years. Okay. So I can't comment on their current their current process, but yeah. I was very impressed with them. But um, you know, so there are some good apples and bad apples. It's more that people need to understand they need to look out for these things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me take it in this direction. Realtors are probably most comfortable in the single family space, a residential space, just because that's what they do every day. Like I said, we've talked in previous podcasts about uh, realtors buying single family properties as rentals. You you briefly mentioned opportunities in that single family space to invest passively. Can you expand on that? How could someone engage in that? In that yeah, space? great question. So there's a few ways you can do that. The most common way, well, there's, there's two ways that are very passive, in my opinion. One is that you can buy what's called a turnkey property directly and take title to it. And then you can actually have someone else who's managing that same property who may have flipped it or flipped it, meaning they rehabbed it for you and then sold it to you. And that I would still consider active, but something you can do. You can find turnkey properties where someone's actually even finding the tenants for you. But in the true passive sense, you're typically investing in a pool of properties or a fund of properties where someone else is purchasing all the properties and actually pooling investors together to buy all these properties. So just like any other type of real estate, it's the same concept. The only difference is that house is being cheaper than a lot of apartment buildings and other buildings. You're typically dealing with a lot of assets or maybe a smaller amount of money. Now, it's kind of hard to find single family funds at this very timing because prices are going down slowly and sponsors know that. And it's a very risky time to invest. A lot of them are very concerned about the potential for price reductions going into a recession, et cetera. So the more common way to invest really right this minute in single family homes is going into a build to rent uh, fund scenario. Those have become very popular in the last two to three years as some, you know, as prices of homes have gone up, one of the solutions has been for people to come in and build full-on communities meant as all rentals that are brand new homes that people are coming in and renting. And someone is actually, as an investor, is owning those homes to rent them out, right? And it's typically in a fun scenario. So that's probably the most common way, followed by Airbnb type of funds, right? So short-term mm -hmm. rental funds, those have become more popular as well. And some of those are continuing on despite the current price decreases in homes, because they often target either very specific markets that aren't necessarily as impacted by the declining home prices. And some of them are like, for example, and I, I don't want to generalize because or use a specific example. I, I don't know this market, but just for example, Disneyland in Anaheim. Okay. That has a lot of people coming to it all the time, even in a recession. And if you own Airbnbs within a few blocks of Disneyland and you're priced correctly and you make them attractive, there's an argument to be made that you're still going to be okay in a recession because you're catering to an international audience. And it's actually a very small number of people that can fit into Disneyland in a day, right? Then that's why the prices are always high. It's the same thing with the ticket pricing power of Disneyland. That's why that is. So there are certain niche areas that are less prone to be hit by a downturn than others, which still could be hit, but maybe, uh, maybe take less of a hit. And so some of those are still operating, still moving forward. 
And so the built to rent and the short-term rental home funds, those are the easiest to find right now. The purchase mm -hmm. and hold or the purchase and flip, harder ones to find right now, but usually easier to find anytime in an upcycle and some interesting opportunities there. Oh, I remember reading an article about Anaheim. This has been a while now and about Airbnbs and the city and the residents being kind of pissed because so many of the properties were being oh. turned into Airbnbs that they were going to start to limit the number of... So it makes me think of like the taxi medallions. If you have one of those permits to have an Airbnb, you really got something. So I don't know whatever happened. See, that. I was just thinking about how, you know, Disneyland can only fit so many people, but there's always a million people there and you have oh, to wait in a line for six hours. That's where worst. my brain went. <laughs> right. You were already at, you were in line for Small World already. But that's what's crazy, right? You go to Disneyland in the middle of a recession and there's still a, a huge line. Oh. That's my point. And those people still need somewhere yeah. to stay, right? And by the way, Paul, you're right though in that one of the huge risks of short-term rentals, I, I just in full disclaimer, I don't have a short-term rental investment myself yet. I'm actually been waiting for the cycle mm -hmm. to potentially reset. Then I'm going to take a much harder look at that. But the, oh yes, I'm sorry, the medallions and stuff. So I've seen investors own short-term rentals or even have a short-term rental fund target a specific area. And then you wake up the next day and the city council has decided there's no show more short-term rentals. And here's the problem. Yeah. Those homes tend to get purchased not necessarily on a business plan of like, okay, what is this house worth as a, a owner occupied home? It gets valued based off of what is this house worth as an income producing home? And often they'll pay right. a lot of money for them because the returns hmm. are very high and they may overpay for them, right? And they may not pay hmm. much attention to the cycle and whether price is going down because their returns are still going to be quite good. But if that changes on a dime for you and you have to liquidate that home, that could be a challenge, right? So that's something to just be aware of. And that's an additional risk in that particular type of asset that doesn't exist in like a longer term buy and hold a rental property often. Let me ask you about your history. You've done a lot of asset classes. And I know it, this is, you'll have to speak in generalities, but what have you done? What deals have worked out best for you and what deals have worked out worst for you? Just speaking personally to, to, to your portfolio. Yeah. And you're referring to real estate only, correct? Okay. Correct. Boy. Well, God, there's been so many deals. So let me start by saying this. Um, I tend to invest in something that's stabilized and it's already existing. It's been well-maintained typically with an experienced sponsor with a diversified tenant base. So just to start off, I have a pretty high probability of success because of what I'm targeting. I have a lower return than someone who's building a development that has a higher risk, right? But because of the risk profile, I like to tell people, it's almost like I'm investing in a brand new plane that has all these redundant systems and it isn't gonna crash unless like four dominoes or six dominoes topple over, right? And so the probability of success in what I'm doing is very high unless there happens to be mismanagement fraud or some other what I call 1% risks, which there always are those risks. You can never eliminate those, right? So I think that the most successful investing I've done as a generalization, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the asset class. It has to do with the combination of where are we in the cycle today for that specific asset class in terms of demand and where are we going to be in five or 10 years? So let me give you examples, okay? In 2005 to 2008, I was going around, I was very young, I wasn't, no kids, going to like dinner parties with my friends, telling people there's going to be a housing crash. Like the price was too high, the affordability is too low, just, just numerically. And people thought I was nuts and it was a really agonizing four years. Like people were just making fun of me and I didn't invest in any of those and I didn't have a problem from those, right? And so it's almost like what I didn't do has actually been the most successful as opposed to what I did do. Because what I do, what I try to do is get something at the right timing with the right business plan for a longer term hold and a long term hold in general tends to lead to a higher probability of success because you have a longer runway before you have to take the, off with the plane. So I set myself up with kind of a higher probability. Another thing I'll, I'll give you an example of is probably a lot of people don't know this on the podcast, but 
probably over 90% of what I saw as an investor in the last two to three years, as far as just general opportunities across any asset class in real estate was apartments. And they were specifically value add, buy, improve and sell flip apartments that were using floating rate loans, which means like adjustable rate loans, right? And I looked at that and said, people are doing adjustable rate, rate loans literally at the, the most risky time at the end of a cycle with the least amount of runway to take that plane off. I didn't do one of them. But if you, but that's what over 90% of the deals were. And so I just waited, right, again. And so because of that, and I saw that, now I completely sidestepped that. That's actually the equivalent of what I sidestepped in 2005, 2008. That is the biggest problem facing passive investors today across anything, okay? So it's, and, and I'll give you one more example, which is office and retail. As of about 2015, I stopped investing in either of those asset classes for the pretty much. And the reason is, is because with retail, internet was getting more popular. Where's that going to be in five or 10 years? I don't know where that predictability is going to be. Office, we started to have more telecommuting, less people working in the office, even back then. Where's that going to be in five or 10 years? I'm not sure. So I would say the success I've had has been more to do with avoiding the landmines as opposed to like, oh, apartments were the best. Oh, mobile home parks were the best. There's certain ones that I like better for predictability than others longer term in terms of where we're going now. So for example, if I think 10 years out from now, apartment demand, mobile home park demand, and self-storage demand to me are the most predictable combined with a senior housing because the population's aging. But the challenge of senior housing is that COVID, and I'm in some of those deals, really hit senior housing hard, scared some people from moving into them. Unfortunately, there are some deaths associated with it. And so it hasn't fully recuperated yet. And number two is staffing shortages and cost of labor has just hit that really, really hard. And I'm not sure that's going to improve anytime soon. So even though demand predictability there, the operational predictability is tough, right? So, but those other asset classes I mentioned are probably going to be my favorite for the next 10 years as far as predictability, because um, I'm always looking to sidestep the landmines. I don't know if that, I didn't really answer your question directly, but. No, you did. I think that's like such amazing advice because it's not about like, oh, I found this perfect deal. It's about. I really like assessed and uh, didn't take deals mm -hmm. when I thought there was a potentiality for risk. And that has saved you probably so much money and so much investment. What's the opposite of FOMO? It's the fear of getting into the wrong deal at the wrong time. But that, that acronym would be very long. <laughs> I guess it's like the fear of striking out instead of missing out. There you go. <laughs> right. No, I love that. It's very, it's a conservative way to look at it, but a smart way but to look at it. But it's such a good point because instead of like, yes, you should be looking for the good deals and the things that make sense for that, you know, but you should also be discerning. And I think that is such value. Well, I'll say this though, that there's a very strong case to be made that I'm going to end up doing not as well from a total return perspective than someone who's more aggressive, like long, long term. I just happen to be very conservative, tend to sleep better when I'm not, when I'm not really not taking as much risk. So I would even say that I don't know that that's necessarily the best thing to do. It depends on your personality. I mean, it's like the stock market, right? You can mm -hmm. invest in a very safe 401k that's mm -hmm. going to just 5 to 8% return year after year, or you could be aggressive. Jeremy is the index fund of <laughs> <laughs> real estate investing. Yeah. And guess what? It's going oh, to continue to appreciate year go. over year. That's so. the only way to go. Jeremy, I, uh, one last question. I don't know if you can speak to this. We're actually going to have a CPA on reasonably soon, but I believe there are some tax benefits of uh, passive investing with regard to depreciation, maybe even if you're a real estate professional. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, yeah. So a few things. And of course, this does vary by asset class because some assets have uh, much more uh, building you can depreciate versus land and other things. 
So first thing to know is that as a passive investor, you can only offset any passive losses against passive gains, okay? So if you're, let's say, a doctor and you're a surgeon and you're working all day and then you have a passive real estate investment, you have active income, okay, on the surgery side, you have passive possible losses on the real estate side. And my understanding is they can keep to be combined unless you meet certain criteria, like being a full-time real estate professional, other things, or maybe your wife or whoever it is can be doing that. So generally speaking, that's important to understand. You, you can only offset passive losses with passive gains or vice versa. Number two is one of the huge benefits of investing in real estate in general is the fact that you actually do get your pro rata share of the depreciation and expense flow through. And so it's very common for me to invest in a tenure opportunity, um, get hypothetically $1,000 in cash flow this year from that property and actually get those expense flow throughs and stuff from a tax perspective and depreciation flow throughs that I'm actually not paying any tax today. Now, and it could even be negative tax to offset other passive income or gains. Now, to be clear, this is not me not paying tax. This is actually the tax is deferred, okay? Because in the end, you pay something called recapture when you sell the building and you have to recapture some or all of that. You're paying a tax, but the great thing about recapture tax is that it's actually currently taxed at the long-term capital gains rate, I believe, which is actually lower than, let's say, ordinary income. So not only am I deferring tax, getting the time value of money, but then I'm also potentially paying a lower tax rate than someone else working in an office, unfortunately, just because the way the tax code is written. So it's very favorable. Also, there's accelerated or bonus depreciation to be done. There's cost segregation. I'm sure you're getting it into this, Paul, in your, in your podcast. But what those things allow you to do is potentially get a first year's very heavily weighted depreciation that is well beyond that $1,000 you got that can really offset some other passive income or gains. And some people will actually strategically choose certain investments to offset other stuff that's happening this year or sale of a property in terms of gains. There's a lot you can do with it. But the bottom line is it's very tax favorable. And I hate to say it, but it just, it's very unfair, but this is how the tax code's written. This is all legal and that's just the tax code, right? But it, it's what the government incentivizes people to do. And so someone slaving away in a 60 hour job behind an office chair will pay much higher tax rate than a typical passive real estate investor. Government wants us all to invest in real estate. Yeah, It's, it's clearly incentivizing <laughs> us. Well, and I'm not saying it's fair either. I, I, I agree with you, but it's been said, I'm sure you've said it, I'm sure lots of other people have said it, a great way to build wealth is real estate, a great way to defer taxes is real estate. It's like, it's just something, I think probably every real estate agent listening knows that real estate is a great asset class and investment for many reasons. Yes, for sure. And then, you know, so. some of the realtors are very familiar with 1031 exchanges. Those are much mm. less common on the passive side. So that's one of the, the downsides of investing in real estate on the passive side is that you're often selling a building and paying the tax after the whatever the period is. Some sponsors will allow you to roll into different properties at 1031, but it's really few and far between. So I wouldn't expect that in the typical deal you're looking in. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I could, we could keep asking you questions forever because I think it's an amazing topic and you're like, you're the expert on it, but it's kind of funny in a sense. You do passive real estate investing full time. So you're actually an active passive real that, estate investor. That is the most Correct. accurate thing to say. I never say that, but it's <laughs> for sure. That's Because I really do it full time. I really mm. network. I have to network a ton to be, you yeah. know, as diversified and successful as I can be. I actually, a lot of what I do is a lot of reading about data, economic data, and not just necessarily the mainstream media, the actual data that comes out. I literally read probably two to three plus hours a day to stay on top of the trends mm. to avoid the landmines we talked about. So it, it takes a lot of work. Wow. If you're going to, if you're really going to commit to it, it takes a lot of work to really figure out what's going on. 
Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having us. And I would say you should have Paul on from his real estate experience as a separate guest. Can you interview yourself? Paul? Yeah, he, he was an extremely successful investor. Paul, mostly or all single family, correct? Both uh, commercial and yeah. single family. So, but yeah, yeah. You. Many thank years you. of you, you have a wealth of information you should share as well at some point. I talk Sarah's ear off the all off all the time, <laughs> so she's sick of hearing about it. No, it's good. We can do an episode on it of just you talking. All right, <laughs> <laughs> we will include Jeremy's info in the show notes, and yeah, we'll go from there. All right, see you next week, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. I'm Paul with Great Builds. And I'm Sarah with Glen Oaks Escrow. And if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at larealtorpod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.